you see, Johnny was the type of kid that was very responsible. He had a perfect service award for every month that he had had the newspaper. So it wouldn't be like him to abandon a whole wagon full of newspapers and go lollygag in some place. We knew our son, and we knew something was wrong immediately. It took about 45 minutes for the police to come over, and our house is 10 blocks from the police station. From the time I called the police until they got here, I had already called for our older son to be sent home from his place of employment because we knew that the family was going to have to pull together. I had called our daughter at college and made arrangements for her fiancé to bring her right here. I had called the district manager at the newspaper and I had found out the names of all the kids that picked up papers at the corner and I had already had a phone conversation with them. <coughs> And in that phone conversation, they described the man, the way he spoke, the car, the color of the car, what the man was wearing. Everything was very detailed because it was very fresh. And I had all that information before the police ever walked into the house. Um, we weren't prepared for what was going to happen next, and that was basically nothing. I mean, it was up to John and I at that point in time to go to the press and beg for help in, in having them show Johnny's picture so that people knew he was missing. Um, there was not the adequate measures taken initially. Uh, the Des Moines Register was very concerned about who was going to be delivering the papers like the next day. And uh, they told us we had to find a replacement. We had to find a replacement. Under those situations, I told them where to put the papers. That's another clip of Noreen Gosh from America's MIA Children. We're going to explore that video again today. So let's digest what we just heard for a second. From everything we've heard so far, every clip from every video I've played for you, hearing firsthand accounts from victims like Paul Benassi, Troy Bonner, Alicia Owen, hearing about this whole world of pedophilia and human trafficking that exists right in plain sight. It makes you wonder, doesn't anybody know what's going on? Even as I talk to you right now, and while I understand this was the 80s and it wasn't uncommon for kids to be out all day and come back home at night, especially in rural Iowa where kids are running through fields and you've got miles and miles of farmland, but it's astonishing to me that there can be this much of a disconnect between the local police and this ring of millionaires, politicians, the very elite who get off on hurting and sometimes killing children. That's what I want to remind you right now, too, is that perpetrators of sex crimes do not actually get off on sex. It's like what you heard Troy Bonner say in one of the clips from Conspiracy of Silence. You can't even really call it sex. They get off on power. It's the humiliation and the pain that turns them on. It's having that power over someone as they lay helpless, as they scream in pain, as they beg for it to stop, or as they lie dead. So that's what I want you to keep in mind for my first segment. Sex crimes, and that includes pedophilia, are about power. We're going to start off by talking about an organization that you might have heard of before, maybe in passing, that tries to manipulate that concept. An organization that proudly calls themselves, quote, a pedophilia advocate. They try to blur that line between right and wrong. They even dare to say that it's about love, of all things. This is episode six of Faded Out. I'm Sarah Dimio.
BAMBLA stands for North American Boy Love Association. And um, this was brought to our attention. It was acquired through an underground connection. And it was the date on here is June of 1983, just a few months after Johnny was taken. And on the front page of NAMBLA's bulletin, down at the bottom, they are warning all of their members, of which Iowa has many, all of their members not to in any way comply with the FBI and, and submit to any kind of questioning on the Johnny Gosh case. And they were very careful to spell it out, Johnny Gosh case. Then this is continued over here on page three. There's another section about Johnny Gosh. Now, why would a rag like this need to warn their members not to talk about our case unless there's some connection? Uh, this is written to Dr. Judy Ann Densengerber, who, by the way, is on the hit list of the NAMLA people. I am writing you at present to request of, at the request of an organization that is not interested in advancing the cause of kitty porn for the sake of the exploitation of children, but rather for the social recognition of children's sexuality, for the acceptance of the sexual expression of adults that desire sexual relations of a loving and tender nature with children and ultimately for raising human beings without the typical sexual impediments that are so prevalent in our Judeo-Christian society. In other words, uh, if it's good for us, it's good for the nation. NAMBLA is the North American Man-Boy Love Association. And as you just heard Noreen Gosh and John Zielinski talk about, that's exactly what they're about. They were founded in San Francisco on December 2nd, 1978. And just going by Wikipedia's explanation, it says they work to abolish age of consent laws, criminalizing adult sexual involvement with minors and campaigns for the release of men who have been jailed for sexual contacts with minors that did not involve coercion. They no longer hold regular national meetings, and as late as the 1990s, they discouraged the formation of local chapters, and that's due to just possible police infiltration. They do have a website, it's nambla.org, and just to look at this website's homepage, the manipulation is strong. Up at the top is the NAMBLA logo, and it's just the word NAMBLA in all capital letters except the B, which is in lowercase. The M and the lowercase B are merged together to symbolize the man-boy love. Uh, the homepage has a picture of a man and a little boy laying down on what appears to be a couch. They each have a hand up, and they're pressing their palms together. And if you didn't know what the picture was being used for, it looks very innocent like it could be a father and son. And over on the left, there's a list of clickable links. And one says, quote, the criminalization of youth. And further down, it says the criminal injustice system. It goes on uh, personal experiences, social issues, social and biological sciences, cross-cultural studies, and so on. And this organization has been in existence for almost 40 years. They do exist. You can look them up. They don't hide the fact that they exist. And I wish I could delve more into the psychology of this because it just seems that this is a classic case of they believe they're the persecuted ones. They believe that children, small children, are capable of having healthy sexual relationships with grown adults. That clip that you just heard of Noreen, you heard that she was reading from a NAMBLA bulletin. And I wanna go over that again, but this time I wanna explain to you the illustrations in this bulletin that are being shown as she pages through it. NAMBLA stands for North American Boy Love Association. And um, 
This was brought to our attention. It was acquired through an underground connection. And it was, the date on here is June of 1983. Just a few here I see a pencil drawing of a young boy with pixie wings. He's nude. He's seated on what looks like grass with his legs spread wide apart. There's another illustration of a young boy, nude, standing very upright. Although being a small boy, he does appear to have some pubic hair. The next one I personally find more disturbing. It's a pencil drawing of a man and a boy. They're both nude, both seated on the floor opposite of each other, but they're holding each other very close. The boy with a serene look on his face, smiling, his eyes closed, burying his head in the man's chest. The man looks equally serene, smiling, eyes closed, his head tilted down at the young boy. You get the idea. You know, whenever we hear accounts of child sex abuse or assault, we ask ourselves and each other a lot. How can people do this? How can they do that to a child? How can they think that's okay? Well, this is how. It's like I said, it's that classic case of turning it around and saying, wait a minute, we're the persecuted ones here. We're not doing anything wrong. We're helping these children. That's the mindset. That's why people look the other way. And while you would think that any decent person would do anything they could to try and help find a missing child, you find that sometimes it becomes more important to not rock the boat. Don't uncover the bigger picture here because that's how far it reaches. The threats came throughout the year of 1987 and 88. We had a lot of activity on the case. We were moving in a direction where um, we thought we really were going to close in on the who did it part. So that became a threat to whoever was responsible to want to stop us. And there was harassment that went on towards us that you wouldn't believe. People would come here in the middle of the night and they would throw things at the house to wake us up. And then we would see them out in the backyard. And by the time we could get outside or the police could get here, that people would be gone. The phone call in question came shortly after John and I had made a trip out of state and it was business on Johnny's case. And we had gotten to this one state and uh, John said, I don't feel comfortable at this hotel. I don't know why. I just don't want to stay here. So we went up to another hotel and checked in and did our business and came home. We were only gone three days. But two days later, I got a call. That one came to my office where there were no taping facilities. That call came to my office and a voice said, it was a male, very gruff voice, and he said, um, you made it very difficult for us to watch you. You switched hotels on us. He then proceeded to tell us what rental car agency we used, where we went, where we ate. In other words, details enough to prove to us that somebody was looking over our shoulder. And for what reason, we didn't know other than we might be hitting pay dirt. We might be getting close to something. Because that would be an indication, we've got to stop these people, we've got to throw the fear of God into them. And then over the period of months, other family members, um, we received threats on them that if we did not back out of certain aspects of this investigation that someone else would be hurt. Finally, the culmination of it took
took place one week. John was in Denver and it happened to be in August. And um, it started off the beginning of the week. I came home one day and the phone rang and it was a well-known man in Des Moines who has walked both lines of the law and he's, he's well-known. And he identified himself on the phone, taking the risk that if the phone was tapped, you know, that people would recognize his name. And he said, I don't want to scare you, but someone has put out the word to make a hit on you, meaning me. And he said, whatever it is that you need from us, there's no strings attached for your protection. And I said, well, what is this about? And he said, just do not leave town. Do not go out of town for any reason. And that was his warning. Well, I hung up the phone and I'm sitting here and I'm thinking, okay, all this other stuff had been going on for months. And I'm thinking to myself, now who's playing a joke on this, you know? Because it was just so ridiculous. A couple minutes later, the, police, the phone rang again, it was the police. And they said, please stay there at the house, we're coming over. They came over and they had received the same phone call from the same man telling them that they better, you know, circle the wagons because something was going to happen. Something was impending. And then is when, it was at that time, I had, I had also been filling in the police lieutenant on all these other things that had been going on for months and the threats, and they, so they had a log of it already as in a progression. It was at that point, that week, that there was a much more concern shown for us and a level of cooperation that came between the police, the FBI, and us for the first time on the case. I was told to just go to my office and home, not to go anywhere else at night, anywhere, nothing. So I didn't. That Thursday of that week, it was in the middle of the night, the phone rang, and it was a man who said, that he wanted me to get on a flight leaving Des Moines, and he gave the flight number, fly into Kansas City on a small plane, and then take an Eastern airliner from there to Tulsa, Oklahoma. Rent a car, and he told me which agency to use, take that car and go to the Holiday Inn, and he specified which one, and wait to check in and wait, check in under my own name and wait to be contacted, that he had information about Johnny. Well, there was the invitation to go out of town that they were waiting for. And um, I called the police right away. I taped the co tape recorded the call, and I called the police right away, and they said, get dressed, get ready, we're on our way, we'll get the FBI, and we'll all be there. So they came, and um, I told them again what the man said, and they said, well, we have to decide what to do. And... Um, the man had said that he had made a reservation for me on the flight in my name. So we're sitting here deliberating about what to do with the FBI. They wanted me to get on the plane and go to take the trip. And it was the police lieutenant who just sat here and just pounded the table and said, you cannot send her. You have to send a policewoman dressed like her because they want her to take the small plane into Kansas City. He said, there's a lot of ways to get to Tulsa other than using that route but they, they wanted me on that small plane because it, it, it unloaded out on the tarmac. They didn't use a jet jetway. And the police here were afraid that there might be a sniper in Kansas City waiting. And if I made it somehow miraculously through Kansas City, that there would be somebody waiting in Tulsa and I'd never come back to Des Moines again. Well, 
the FBI said that they couldn't make a decision locally, they would have to go back to their office and call Washington for instructions. So at that point I said, well, did anybody bother to call the airline and find out if this turkey really did make a reservation for me? So they called the airline from here, and the reservationist said that someone had called in on the 800 number after midnight and made a reservation in my name on that flight. So then they knew this was serious. And um, by the time the day progressed, the flight left at 4.59, so they had to make some fast decisions. They finally did agree to send a policewoman, but it was only after the FBI offered me money to go. They offered to pay for all of my flight, food, rental car, everything, and send a plain clothesman to stay with me at all times. And I refused. I said, no, this is what the warning was earlier this week. I'm not going to trip. I was advised not to, and I'm not going to. So they sent a policewoman in my place, and they caught the guy who approached her, and he's now serving time in the Oklahoma penitentiary. So thankfully, we're seeing some kind of cooperation from law enforcement. They were acknowledging that the threats were very real. The unfortunate thing here is that there wasn't that level of cooperation in regards to Paul Benassi. And for me, I start to question, is the reason they wouldn't ask him about Johnny because they thought he wasn't credible? Because he suffered from multiple personality disorder or was just some pathological liar? Or is it a matter of not wanting to rock the boat? and see what else we uncover. Here's another clip from America's MIA children. You're going to hear from John Zielinski and then from Dr. Judy Ann Denson-Gerber. Paul Bonacci has a photographic memory. He can remember every date, every place, every person, every scar, and he has identified Johnny Gosh. He helped to kidnap Johnny Gosh. He was only 12 or 13 at the time and he was taken along. He also identified the fact that in 1987, when Mrs. Gosh was threatened, when they were told their children would be killed if they revealed that they thought the North American Man-Boy Love Association was the kidnapped ring, at that very time, Paul Bonacci was making a pornographic film with Johnny Gosh, who was a slave in a house of prostitution in Colorado. Uh, I'm Judy Ann Denson-Gerber. I am a psychiatrist and a lawyer and have been practicing since 1967. At that time, my major interest was in drug abuse and I founded the Odyssey House programs across the United States, in uh, Australia, New Zealand, and in Hong Kong. By 1985, however, I began to see a new phenomenon. And that phenomenon was that the patients that I was seeing, many of whom had disassociative disorders, post-traumatic stress, which I've talked about, but also multiple personality, uh, and therefore could only remember fragments of what had happened to them, but these fragments were coming out in their 30s, began to remember ritualistic cult abuse. And to my uh, sadness, having been a religious major in college, I realized that there were many people who used their children in uh, the worship of the Prince of Darkness, Satan, Lucifer, uh, Isis, which is an Egyptian prince of the, uh, princess of darkness, actually, married to the king of the underworld, and that we had many, many victims of this type of activity. Uh, someone who had uh, knew that this was my field 
and knew that there were implications of ritual and uh, satanic cult abuse in the Nebraska Franklin Credit Union uh, scandal and uh, embezzlement of funds, uh, and that the major witness uh, in that, Paul Benassi, uh, happened to be a victim himself at a very early age of child molestation, uh, had been a boy prostitute, uh, had been in porn uh, pictures, had also, uh, according to his, his statements, uh, participated in five cult murders, uh, and was a multiple personality, uh, very much like Sybil is the one that I'm sure most people will know, Three Faces of Eve, that because he was a multiple personality, and since I was an expert in disassociation and multiplicity, would I see him for the purposes of whether or not uh, he was credible. Uh, when interviewing Paul Benassi, he definitely said that he had seen uh, Gosh, and he had seen Gosh on two separate occasions uh, in a child white slave house. Uh, he also described that Gosh had an unusual birthmark. This birthmark was not part of the general information. And when he shared that with Mr. Gosh and then eventually with Mrs. Gosh, they said that it had to be their son. Now, for uh, this would have been about um, at least four years after the initial kidnapping occurred. To me, the fact that he had seen uh, this young man alive in a child white slave house could describe a physical uh, aspect that was not uh, a usual one that the parents themselves uh, said that they believed that he had seen their son definitely deserved to be looked into. I mean, that isn't something you can just uh, turn aside. Uh, interestingly enough, I had a very, uh, what will I say, uh, goose-pimply kind of experience with Benassi. So now we have a psychiatrist who met personally with Paul Benassi, saying that he is credible. And notice, the story has still never changed. The details of his involvement in Johnny's abduction on the morning of September 5th, 1982, never change. So now that leads me into the next layer of the story. Remember, Paul Bonassi was a victim. And if you remember the clips from Conspiracy of Silence, you know his lawyer, John DeCamp, is not one to back down. According to the Franklin Scandal by Nick Bryant, John DeCamp filed 16 civil lawsuits in federal court on behalf of Bonassi, directed at the people accused of molesting him or of covering up the abuse. The book explains that U.S. District Court Judge Warren Erbaum dismissed 15 of the lawsuits. But Larry Larry King was already incarcerated when these lawsuits were filed, and he opted not to contest the allegations. So, Erbaum entered a, quote, default judgment against King in 1998, and then John DeCamp moved for a separate trial on the issue of compensation. It would be that trial that then takes Johnny's story into a whole new direction. So in my next segment, we're going to talk more about this legal battle, and we're going to see just how much credibility it lends to all the stories we've heard so far on what happened to Johnny. That's up next.
I don't envy Paul Benassi's position. Not one bit. He was a victim of abuse from the age of eight, lured into a sex trafficking ring in his early youth, forced to participate in sex, in snuff films, witnessed to murder, had his own life threatened multiple times, and he was forced to lure children into these pedophilia rings, much in the same way that it happened to him. And then he was arrested and put into prison for child molestation, an act that he was forced to do, and something that he himself was a victim of repeatedly. And when he decided to come forward about his involvement in Johnny's kidnapping, nobody wanted to believe him. That is, except for Noreen Gosh. And I like that, one thing that always appeared to be true to me with watching Who Took Johnny or even America's MIA children. Any clip from any video I've seen of Noreen Gosh, she always has all her wits about her. Anybody who tries to say, oh, she's a character, she doesn't know what she's talking about, I would say you need to listen harder. And David Bielinson, the director of Who Took Johnny, will confirm this. I asked him what his thoughts were on Noreen and he calls her a force of nature. I asked him, does he think that after dealing with this for all these years, does she still have her head on straight? And he told me, yes, she does. So with that confirmation, anytime I hear Noreen say that she believes Paul Benassi's account of that morning Johnny disappeared and that he knew details about Johnny that only someone who saw him in person would know, that's how I know that I can believe Benassi too. On top of that, we've got America's Most Wanted letting Benassi take them to the house that the boys were kept in. We've got other victims coming forward saying they were in that house and that they were branded like cattle. And then we've got Dr. Judy Ann Denson Gerber, a psychiatrist and a lawyer who met with Benassi for the purpose of assessing if he was credible, saying yes, in fact, he is. So with all this evidence collected, let's talk about Paul Benassi's lawsuit against Lawrence King. As I mentioned, John DeCamp filed a total of 16 civil lawsuits on behalf of Benassi against the people accused of molesting him or covering up the abuse over the years. All but one was dismissed, and that was the lawsuit against Lawrence King. King was serving a sentence for his embezzlement of $40 million, which led to the downfall of the Franklin Credit Union. He chose not to contest Benassi's allegations, and the Franklin scandal had has a quote here from the U.S. District Court Judge, Warren Erbom. It says, quote, A lot of people conduct lawsuits from prison. There is no indication he wanted to dispute this. The defendant King's default has made those allegations true against him. End quote. So with that, Erbom entered the default judgment, as it were, in 1998, and that's when DeCamp moved to have the separate trial regarding compensation. They were seeking $1 million. This default judgment discusses, quote, repeated sexual assaults, false imprisonments, infliction of extreme emotional distress, organized and satanic rituals. It goes on to say, quote, he has suffered burns, broken fingers, beating of the head and face, and other indignities by the wrongful actions of the defendant king. In addition to the misery of going through the experiences just related over a period of eight years, the plaintiff has suffered the lingering results to the present time, end quote. Now, I'm going to read you one more passage from the Franklin scandal by Nick Bryant. Quote, I wrote that Benassi received a modicum of vindication from the judgment, and DeCamp felt Judge Erbom finally believed Benassi. But the real vindication ultimately came in the form of King's appealing the judgment, then withdrawing his appeal after DeCamp began making motions for depositions. King was released from federal prison in April 2001 after serving nearly 10 years for his financial crimes, and he relocated to the Washington, D.C. area. Which, side note, you remember that at the beginning of episode 4, 
five that a listener had provided me with a link that explained that King had been involved with a children's opera, of all things, as an advocate and claiming to be devoted to teaching these young opera singers. The last line of this paragraph reads, quote, Not a single dollar from the judgment has yet been collected. End quote. And according to my own research, that is still the case to this day. So this separate trial began in 1999. Seeking a $1 million settlement, John DeCamp needed to bring in some character witnesses to testify. Paul Benassi himself obviously testified. His wife Denise also testified. And DeCamp also called in Noreen Gosh to testify. One of the questions that was asked to Noreen was, had she ever seen her son since his disappearance in 1982? And you can understand this is sort of meant as a formality kind of question, just so when she says no, that they have it on the record. So, being under oath, Noreen had to answer every question honestly. She said yes. She saw Johnny when he came to her door in the middle of the night in March 1997, which was two years prior to this trial. And obviously, this answer stunned the room, and the media circus quickly ensued. Now, we have no one else to corroborate this account with. It's Noreen's word against anybody else's. I've heard Noreen recount this story several times in Who Took Johnny, on various talk show clips, etc. And the details go like this. In March 1997, Noreen was divorced from her husband John, and she had remarried. And they lived in a different area of West Des Moines. And so, one night, very late, Past midnight, Noreen heard a knock at the door. She goes over to the front door and asks who it is. And a voice says, Mom, it's me. It's Johnny. She opens the door and looks over this grown man in his late 20s. And his hair is long and it's dyed black. So she asks him to show her a scar on his face. She looks into his eyes. And it's him. It's Johnny. After almost 15 years, he showed up at her door in the middle of the night and he has another young man with him and they're about the same age and this other person never speaks the whole time that they're there. And her initial thought is that Johnny is home to stay. So she says, let me call someone, let me call the police. But he says, no, she can't do that. And he can't stay because it's not safe. He has to get out of town. And so Johnny and this other man are there for a couple of hours. And in that brief visit, Johnny confirms to Noreen the details of his abduction, who did it, where he was taken, and the pedophile network of rich and powerful people that he was sold into. And after he explained to her everything that he had been through, he reiterated that he was afraid for his life, he didn't want any of these people to catch up with him, so he and the other man he was with, presumably a fellow victim, had to leave and get out of Des Moines. And so with that, the two disappeared back into the night, just as mysteriously as they showed up, and they were never seen again to this day. Here's a clip of Noreen talking about this encounter in the documentary, Who Took Johnny? I was asked to be a part of Paul Benassi's trial when they were suing his perpetrator. I was asked during the questioning whether I had ever seen or talked to my son in all the years he had been missing. And I didn't answer. And the judge instructed me that I would have to answer. I'd be in contempt of court. So I said once, I saw my son once. He had another young man with him 
who didn't say anything, and Johnny did not introduce him. I said, let me call somebody to help. He immediately got very upset, and he said, they'll kill me if they know I've been here. He shared some information about how they trafficked the kids through the country. He did not go into great detail about the sexual abuse and that the kids were forced to do a lot of things that were illegal. So therefore, none of them would ever go to the police for help. And then in a very short time, it was over and he said, I have to go. Looking back on it, I probably should have refused and been in contempt of court because all hell broke loose. Before we even drove home, the news was everywhere. So obviously, we've got some questions here. How could she just let him leave? Why did she never say anything about this until she was under oath two years later? Well, Noreen does have an answer for that. It was very simple. My son asked me not to say anything. So that's another layer uncovered. And in my next episode, we're going to dissect this. Did an adult Johnny really visit his mother Noreen in March of 1997? Is that even possible? And what does this mean for Johnny's case and for these alleged pedophile rings that are still being uncovered? For now, this is where I'm going to leave you today. I'll be back next week and we'll be digging even deeper. As always, I ask you to please get in touch. Any ideas you may have on Johnny's case, a tip you'd like to share, anything that you think I should talk about, you can email me at fadedoutpodcast at gmail.com. And you can also tweet me. My Twitter handle is Sarah E. Dimeo. That's S-A-R-A-H-E-D-I-M-E-O. Faded Out is also on Facebook. The URL for that is facebook.com slash faded out podcast and we have a brand new edition and that's a group on facebook called followers of faded out which i just created this week it's a closed group so members have to request to join and in there we can talk about details of the case i ask you not to be shy please feel free to share your ideas i will never give out your name on this podcast i will always assume you'd prefer to remain anonymous and so let's start by putting our heads together as always faded out is recorded at the connecticut school of broadcasting and Farmington, Connecticut. Thank you for joining me today for episode six. I'm Sarah Dimio. See you next time.